Good evening. Good to see you here. We're continuing in John's Gospel. We're in chapter 12 and we're starting at verse 12. We are moving towards the end of Jesus' life and ministry on earth, his physical life before the cross. And there's quite a few chapters that are spent on these last moments of his life because they're very important. We left last week in chapter 12 of this great representation of worship after Jesus had brought Lazarus back from the dead. They tried to kill him, and so he left because they were trying to kill him, but he came back. And everyone is wondering because the Passover is going to take place, and they're all looking out for Jesus. In fact, the word has been sent out, if you see Jesus, let us know, because we're going to arrest him. Their intention is to kill him. And so it's an incredible thing that he is moving back because he knows this and he's aware of what's going to happen and still he chooses to come back and as he comes back to what's going to be the beginning of the end, there is this incredible act of worship that is shown and displayed by Mary as she takes this expensive ointment and breaks it and anoints Jesus' feet and she uses her hair, and, and we talked about that to some length of what that symbolized. Jesus said, this is in preparation for my burial. They didn't fully understand, and this act of worship is something that we still talk about. But as we continue now, Jesus is moving on. It says in verse 12, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. We'll stop there and then we'll continue on. The crowd that is gathering is the crowd of those who are in Bethany as well as those who are in Jerusalem waiting for the Passover feast. We can imagine close to two million people. Okay, it is huge. People from all over the world are coming to this festival. There's the Passover, there's the Pentecost and the Tabernacles. Those are three of the big festivals there in Jerusalem. And from, for the Passover, everyone from all over came to celebrate this. This was their remembrance, as you know, from Exodus when God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, where the lamb was sacrificed the blood was put on the lintel and the doorposts and the angel of death would pass over that home and the firstborn child would be spared. 
That's why they get the name Passover. And so this was not only a, a memory or a festival, it was an acknowledgement that God had delivered us. And in the Hebraic mind, when God had done something, it wasn't that God just did it once. What God was doing was representing who he was. And so God had delivered them. They are now oppressed by Rome, and they desire deliverance again. And so the Passover was a reminder of what you have done, God, and what we want you to do again. We want deliverance. And Jesus is now well-known. The miracles have gone about. People are talking about him, especially Lazarus being risen from the dead. And so now you've got these two streams of people, those in Jerusalem and those in Bethany, who are following with Jesus, and they come to this head, and it's an incredible Event. It's just something spectacular to, to imagine just taking place. And as they're seeing Jesus on the way, they, they take palm branches and they go out to meet him. And this is something that they would do to welcome a, a person of royalty. And then the shouts out, Hosanna. What they are doing is echoing what the Psalms say in Psalm 119. Hosanna means save now. Here we are, the Passover, the time when you've delivered us in the past. Save now. You've done miraculous things. If anyone can deliver us, it's you. Save now. Get the palm branches. And this psalm is one of the Hallel psalms, the psalms that they would sing as they would go to the temple. And as they would go to the temple, they would sing this psalm as recognition of who God was and their praise for him. Oftentimes it was used in celebration of royalty when they were coming or people who'd come after a victory. They would sing this psalm because it was a psalm victorious. And so as they are saying, save now, they're proclaiming these things. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. To say he is the king of Israel is a powerful statement. When you think of a king of Israel, who do you think of? David, Jesus, okay, God, David, Jesus. Well, I was thinking of David. They would be thinking most likely of David, someone who they knew as a physical king. And so David or that lineage of King Solomon, these are their kings, and now they're putting that title on Jesus as he's coming in. And so now we see their expectation. At this time, there was probably such an uproar that Jesus couldn't speak to the crowd because of the noise. There is so much commotion going on. Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it. Another gospels, it says that the disciples went out, got a donkey, and they said, if someone asks, tell them the Lord has need of it. And then they brought the donkey. So Jesus sent them out. They got the donkey, and he sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, this was prophetic from Zechariah chapter 9. And the donkey is interesting. You know, for us, if you were going to have a king coming in a procession, a donkey wouldn't be the animal we would choose. We'd want a horse. But a horse was used when you were coming victorious from battle. If you were marching into a place and wanting to represent peace... 
than you would ride on a donkey. And it was considered a noble animal. It was very useful to the Jewish people. And so Jesus comes in on the donkey, and we see this throughout Judges and Second Samuels, where royalty comes in on a donkey. It was well known. And so Jesus comes in on a donkey, and he's already starting to let them know that his purpose is different. I'm not coming in the way that you think I'm coming, but they don't see that. They're not seeing who he is. They're only seeing who they think he is. And at first it says his disciples didn't understand all this. It was after Jesus was glorified, speaking of his resurrection, that they realized that these things had been written about him. That Zechariah and the Psalms, these things had all been written about him and the things that had been done to him. Now, I need to stop and take just a moment to talk about why this event is substantial. Here he's being proclaimed as king. And that is something that they had been waiting for because it has been told would happen, that they would have a king. And in Luke's gospel, in chapter 19, Jesus speaks out and he says that judgment was coming because they didn't recognize the time of God's coming to them. And he says that about this event that's taking place right here. And turn with me to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and 27. We've got to look at that just quickly. Daniel chapter 9. Verse 24 and 27. Oop, I went to chapter 11. Verse 24, we're coming into one of the prophecies, and I'm not going to go into extended depth of, of all of this. But in verse 24, it says, Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be 77s and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in the time of trouble." After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple... He will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed and poured out on him. Now, this prophecy contains a lot, but one of the things I want to point out that the decree to rebuild that's spoken of that in verse 25, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, and then there's the seven sevens. And the sevens, most people think, are actually years. 
So it's kind of a multiple of years. Well, we know that there was a command to rebuild Jerusalem by Nehemiah. And so there was a time when that was happening, and then the dates, if you were at those sevens of years up, it comes to the time where Jesus is here now. And so it's believed that this was prophetic of this event, that Jesus was actually coming into Jerusalem, and then it goes on to talk about destruction that was going to take place even after this was taking place. But we see that the anointed one will be put to death. He'll have nothing. All this is talking about the Messiah who's going to come and be put to death. And so there was awareness or should have been awareness about the Messiah's purpose, the anointed one. But they didn't see this until later on. And so Jesus is coming in and this is a monumental Occasion because this is something that has been foretold. This is something that Daniel has spoken about, that he was going to suffer, has been written by Isaiah, the other prophets. And so Jesus isn't supposed to be a surprise of what's going to happen. But again, they aren't expecting this. This isn't what they want. And so as he moves forward, this fanfare, this celebration of who he is, is going to start to wane. It's going to start to fade because their Messiah that they were expecting would do something different. At first, his disciples didn't understand, but after he was glorified, they realized this was what they were talking about. And so imagine Jesus hearing the people shouting out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. That's true. I am the king. But as they're shouting out, save now, his intention is salvation. But it's not what they're thinking salvation is. Have you ever been misunderstood? Where you want to tell someone something, but they're not hearing what you're saying because... They've got something else already stuck in their mind. And it's very frustrating to the point where sometimes it's like you're having a dialogue and every word you say, they interpret it as different. You know, How does he now tell them, I've come to bring salvation? Yes, we want salvation. No, not, not like that. I've come to be glorified. Yes, be glorified. No, no, not yet. Everything now is interrupted by their preconception. And we do that still. We do that still. It says in verse 17, we'll continue reading, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look now how the whole world has gone after him. We talked last week how they were very concerned about everyone going after him because they had a position that was secure. They were the go-between for Rome and the nation of Israel. So they had a lot of perks. And if this guy comes in saying he's king, Rome comes in saying, nah, we're going to stop this now. And so they're worried about their position. They're worried about what's going to happen. They're not seeing what's going on, but people are already just 
in a frenzy. He's, you know, he's done miracles. He raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the guy. And the whole world has gone after him. John is speaking that because now something is taking place. In verse 20, it says, now there were some Greeks. And we begin to see here that the whole world was actually beginning to hear. Now, where would these Greeks come from in this Jewish festival? Now, it wasn't uncommon. Greeks wandered everywhere. They were allowed to go here. It wasn't like it's forbidden. But where did they hear about Jesus? And why would they want to come up and see him? Maybe they heard about a miracle. Remember when Jesus cleared the temple? When he cleansed the temple, it was in the outer court. That was the the court of the Gentiles. That's where they were allowed to come in to give worship to God. So imagine some Gentiles being in there coming to worship God, and then they see this rabbi throwing tables all over the place and whipping people and shouting out, you've made my father's house, you know, uh, it was supposed to be a house of prayer, you've made it a den of thieves. And they go, whoa, got to go home and talk about this. Right? Something's going on with this guy. And then they start hearing more about this rabbi. They see this multitude. Hey, let's go see if we can talk to Jesus. And so they go to talk to Jesus. And and they went to talk to Philip. It says they came up to the festival. Verse 21, they came to Philip. Now, Philip's name is a Gentile name, which is probably why they came to him. Who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew because I don't know what to do. And Andrew said to Philip, in turn, they told Jesus. Now, by this time, they had learned, don't turn people away from Jesus. Remember, they've done this a number of times. Remember the children? Hey, kids, stay away. And Jesus said, hey, knock it off. Let the children come to me. Remember the Grecian woman who was crying out for healing for her, I don't know if it was son or daughter. And then they said, Jesus, she's bothering us. And Jesus says, it's not right to give bread to the dogs. And the disciples were, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Jesus said, I've come for the lost children of Israel. Yeah, that's right, they said. That's right. And the woman says, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. And she heals her child teaching the disciples, God cares about them too. The Samaritan woman, the woman caught in adultery, you don't turn people away from Jesus. That's why he overthrew the tables and the the outer court is because they were putting a roadblock between God and people and he couldn't stand for that. So by now they said, don't turn anyone away from Jesus. Okay, they want to see Jesus. Okay, Jesus, these guys want to see you. They're getting the point. It's taken three years. And they're finally getting the point. And Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In their minds, at this time, that could only mean one thing. He's come to establish his rule. But Jesus meant something completely different. We need to be careful that our minds don't get locked into a way of thinking that God cannot break through. And 
we do this all the time. We've done it throughout history. Tradition becomes our refuge. It becomes what we go to. It's, it's familiar to us. You know, I love singing the old songs because they remind me of this. Or I love when we do this because it reminds me of this. And pretty soon, our traditions and our comforts start to dictate what we see. They start to determine how we view God and how we view the world around us because this is what we know and everything is filtered through what we see and that becomes our viewpoint. You know, I didn't share this on Sunday, but as I was going through Sunday and we were talking from Genesis just about the Sabbath, you know, and the seventh day, what the Sabbath represented, this worship that man was made for God, and this was something that was going to be carried through. We talked about in Hebrews chapter 4, and go ahead and turn there real quick, because I want to point out maybe something that has happened to us in our traditions and the way we hear things and how we interpret things. You know, let me just read this scripture to you and see what you guys think about it. It's Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Now, I know you guys have probably heard that passage. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And... I can't tell you how many times I've heard that passage and it's been used in reference to the Bible, right? The Word of God, the Word of God. And how many times we hear the Word of God is the Bible? Let's look before this in verse 8. And remember, talking about the Sabbath what's taking place there at the Sabbath. In verse 8 it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. And so the writer of Hebrews is connecting us to Genesis chapter 1 when God rested. God ceased from his work and what the Hebrew author is telling us is that we now can cease from our work and we can rest in the salvation that God has brought through the person of Jesus. This is our new Sabbath, so to speak. This is our rest. This was a fulfillment. You were created for worship. You were to set aside your life to God for worship. Now God has given his life for you and has set you apart for worship. That is what he's talking about here. And right after he talks about entering into this rest that has been accomplished by Jesus, he says the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And he's not talking about the Bible because the Bible wasn't written when this was there. It wasn't completed. The author of Hebrew probably didn't have the revelation of John. He probably didn't have some of John's epistles. Probably didn't have some of Jude or maybe even all of Paul's writings. So what is he talking about? He is talking about the gospel. 
the message of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the promise of God who is fulfilled in Jesus because the gospel isn't just Jesus dying for our sins. It is the promise of God that began at the very beginning. It's that God has never forgotten, has never stopped working, who has always been involved with humanity. From the very beginning, this earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It hasn't stopped. God is still wanting to occupy and work in our midst and in the lives of his people. And it hasn't stopped from the beginning in Genesis when the seventh day he rested, giving us an example that we are created in his image. We are created for him also to worship and establishing that Sabbath to now Jesus fulfilling this and we rest in him. The word of God is the work of Jesus Christ. But next time you hear someone say the word of God and they hold up their Bible, understand that we have gotten in our mind, well, that's what it means. How many other things are like that where we have just heard it and said, oh, yeah, that's what it means? Because now to us, the word of God means the Bible. I'm not saying that the Bible isn't inspired by God. It is. We talked about that. All scripture is God breathed is profitable for instruction, reproof, correction for the man of God to be perfect, whole. I'm not taking away from what the scriptures are, but I want to take away the blinders of what is really being said. Because we don't connect to a book, we connect to the person of Jesus. The book points us to Jesus. And it's important that we understand that because that's the dynamic of this relationship we have with God. It's not about rules and laws. I can go on so much more, but I want to finish the chapter. Be careful. Your traditions are there. My traditions are there. And every now and then you'll hear something and I'll say, oh, I can't believe that. That's why not? Well, because that's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because I was told differently. Well, maybe you're seeing things the wrong way. Maybe you have misunderstood what God has done. Maybe... Jesus didn't come to bring this victory that you thought. Maybe he came to bring the sacrifice, and in there is your victory. How many times have people been told that, you know, if they're right with God, they wouldn't suffer illness or financial hardship or, uh, you know, different difficulties? And yet, throughout our history as followers of Christ, we've experienced death, persecution, those kinds of things. In fact, we're going to see Jesus says that. But someone tells you one thing, and that sounds good to me. I'll hold on to that. And then when your life encounters hardship, you're saying, God, what happened? I don't get it. What's going on? I thought this was supposed to fix all of that. It's important that we see things clearly from God's perspective and not let our tradition blind us. 
And we'd be foolish to think that this just happened to the Pharisees and doesn't happen to us. Okay, that's all I'm going to say for that. Verse 27, John 12. Jesus says, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. It's interesting the voice that God has that's audible happens at his baptism, happens at the transfiguration, and it happens here. The baptism was the commitment to the ministry. Transfiguration, it was the determination to go back down to Israel to fulfill what he's fulfilling here and here where he is now. My heart is troubled, but what am I going to do? Say, save me from this hour? No. This is why I came instead, Father, glorify your name. And then the voice comes. We want to hear from God. And sometimes we wonder, why doesn't God speak to me? You know, I want, I want God to speak to me. I want to know God's will. I want to know God's direction for my life. But maybe we're not living lives that God can affirm. It's when Jesus makes the move and sacrifices his will that the voice of God comes. It's when Jesus decides to, to do this and acts on this that the voice of God comes. It's when there is a commitment to the will of God that the voice of God comes. And I wonder if sometimes the reason we're not hearing from God is because we are not committed to the things of God. And we want God to give us affirmation, but we're not living lives that he can affirm. And the miraculous always requires sacrifice. If we want God to work, we need to be willing to step into it. Abraham, go. I'll tell you where. Okay? I'll go. Abraham, sacrifice your son, the father of faith. Okay, I'll do it. That's going to be fun when we get there in Genesis. Why wouldn't Abraham say, no, I shouldn't do that? Because that wasn't an uncommon thing in his time. Okay, I'll do it. And when Abraham goes to sacrifice, God intervenes, shows up, and provides the lamb. God always steps in when people step out. And so many times we want God to show us the way so that we can walk in that path. And God says, no, step into the water like Joshua, and then I'll separate the waters. Joshua 3, 5. Consecrate yourselves. Separate yourselves apart. Dedicate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. First, you need to do something. 
so that God can do something. And maybe the reason God doesn't do anything in our lives is because we won't do anything. And if we're unwilling to move, do you think God is going to step in front of us to open a way if we're already secure? The life of faith isn't easy. Faith is never meant to be security. I don't know where we got this idea that faith is an easy thing. Faith is difficult. Faith is something that requires our commitment before we see it. And so Jesus here, once again, says, Father, be glorified. And then the voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it. The crowd says it thundered. Some says an angel spoke. And Jesus says in verse 30, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. There's another phrase. When, let's lift Jesus up. Well, Jesus was talking about his crucifixion. It's one of those terms. He just, yeah, we're here to lift Jesus up. When Jesus said this, he was talking about the cross. And so he's saying, when I be lifted up, I'm going to draw the people to myself. But that was talking about the cross. And the judgment that's going to come is going to come because of his going to the cross. Verse 34 the crowd spoke up. We heard. <laughs> Wait, you're, you're saying what? You're, you're going to be lifted up and you're going to die? The people said, we heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They believed the Messiah would establish David's throne forever. We thought that this was how it was. So then who is the Son of Man? Because if you're not going to fill that position, who is? See, he threw a wrench into their thinking, and all of a sudden they're like, well, okay, then who's the guy? If it ain't you, then who it is? Who it is? Who is it? <laughs> who it is? <laughs> but in verse 35, Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light. That's him. While you have the light so that you may become children of the light. You see, he's answering their question, who is the son of man? He's saying, it's me. And he's appealing to the Jews there to believe in him before the cross came and he was taken away from them. He, he's appealing to them, you guys, you need to have faith that I am the Messiah before I go to the cross, because when I go to the cross, you're going to doubt it. And we see that that happened. The disciples doubted. They didn't want to continue in that way. And the more that a person lets himself get fixed in his ways, the harder it, harder it is to, to get out of those ways. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. I, I, I've seen people get stuck. And it could be a number of things. 
It could be a habit, an addiction. It could be a way of thinking. You know, you've heard one way of thinking and and that dominates your mind and that dominates your belief. You know, you talk to a Muslim and their dominant thought might be, well, God does not beget, neither is he begotten. And so that's in their mind. And so you try and talk to them about Jesus being God. And that rhyme just comes up. God does not beget, neither is he begotten. No, that can't be true because God does not beget, neither is he begotten. And instead of that being wrong and them seeing things in the wrong way, that holds them. And the same thing is true here. They're being held by this belief. And Jesus is saying, I'm here just a little while longer. Believe in me before I go to the cross. Because when it's dark, you're not going to know what you're doing. But that you might become the children of light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Why did he hide himself from them? Did he just have to get away? I, I, you know, there are so many things that we don't have recorded. John tells us that we couldn't have enough books to hold all the things that Jesus did. But these things where Jesus left and hid himself from them, we know that Jesus would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's John's account of Jesus being troubled. Maybe he went to another lonely place where he could just be by himself, where he could process all that was going on right here with them. And so as this is taking place, we we see very much the humanity of Jesus in all these things. He's encouraging them to believe in them, to listen, to do the right things so that they can move forward in their lives, so that they would believe in him, become children of their light, the light. Verse 37, he says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. This is two Quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. And as he starts to quote Isaiah here, we have to go back to what was happening with Isaiah because Isaiah was begging the people to listen to God. And the people would not. He was crying out for them. He was laboring for them to come to an awareness of God, and they wouldn't. And we have to understand this passage doesn't mean that God has predestined certain people to unbelief, but that even man's unbelief can still be used to further God's purposes. In other words, I'm begging you to listen, but you won't listen, so I'm going to use your unbelief to further what I need to accomplish. But he's not saying, well, I'm not, I'm making it so you can't make it. You know, God doesn't say jump, but then he holds it too high for us to reach. That's not the character of God. These Jews didn't believe in Jesus. That was not God's fault. That was their fault. But even in that, 
somehow God has a way to work in the midst of it. And actually, because of that, he was going to open the door to the Gentiles and the rest of the world. And so as he quotes Isaiah, it's important to, again, go back to what was happening in Isaiah's time as this was taking place, and we see the heart of it wasn't that God was turning people away. It was God was reaching out for people, and people were closing their hearts to what God said. And so God said, okay, then I will work in spite of you. It's incredible how that takes place. Verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke about him. It's amazing to me how people can be aware of something that's good for them and choose something else. I met yesterday uh, with a young man and he is going through some things and, you know, I talked to him, I said, well, what is the life that you want? And he explained, well, this is what I would like to see my life move in this direction. I'd like to, you know, accomplish this and I'd like to settle down over here. And these are all great things. And I said, well, then why are you doing this? Because he was doing things that were going to keep this from happening. You're telling me this is what you want, but you're doing things that don't line up with what you want. Now, either you don't really want that, or it's just too difficult and you don't want to put the effort out. And so... Many times it's like, well, yeah, I'd like to have that life, but that's a lot of work. If I do that, if I have this this life of devotion, hearing from God, well, it's going to mean I really have to spend time in prayer. I really need to have that kind of communication with God. It really means that I I should read the scriptures and and get to know what God has said and done throughout history. It's going to take some time. I should probably actually study. You know, I might have to study some things. I hate studying. You know, so I'll have a bowl of cereal and watch Modern Family. <laughs> Not that you can't have cereal or, or watch Modern Family, um, but you see what I'm saying. It's like it's easier to sit down and watch TV than it is to put the time and effort into doing the things that will take you to where you want to go. And so really what you're saying is this is really what I want. That sounds good but I think I'd rather do this. And that's where we find a lot of people who are followers of Jesus, but they just want to follow him from a distance. I don't want to be committed. I don't want to have to sacrifice. I don't want to count the cost. And when you start talking about, you know, we are all given this ministry of reconciliation, that we are all to be part of this body and that you can't be on the sidelines because there is no such thing in this work of God. And people are like, ah, I don't know, that's a little too you know, much for me. And then they find they're never living the life they really want. And Jesus goes on and he talks about this. Verse 42, at the same time, 
Many, even among the leaders, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Oh, I'd really like to be with Jesus. Oh, but I'm worried about this. Well, I really want to be in good these guys. And so they care more about what these people say than what it would be to be with Jesus, especially if he's going to get in trouble. Verse 44, Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say that all that I have spoken. I missed something here. Did I? Did I? Did I? No. Okay. Therefore, verse 38, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. And so Jesus once again, is saying, you listen to me, it's listening to God, and this is the plan that God has. But you love the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's something that we always have to take to heart. Am I listening to the praise of men rather than the praise of God? Am I caring about these things or not? We have... In this short dialogue that's taking place, once again, Jesus putting it out and leaving a choice of how we will live. And we have the choice to follow him or not. He's not here to judge us, but our actions will judge who we are more than anything else. Like I said before, because this is something that Jesus has repeated before. If I look at the Mona Lisa and I said, ah, that's not that great of a painting. Well, it's already a masterpiece. Okay, the odds are that you really just don't know painting. I don't know if it's oil paint or what it is, so it's obvious. I don't know. And so me saying that that's not a masterpiece is saying more about me than it is the painting because it's already a masterpiece. It's already priceless. And so what I'm doing is showing that I don't know what it really is. And the same thing is happening. If you don't recognize who Jesus is, then it's really judging you because who he is is already established. He's God. And so now you're bringing judgment on yourself because you're not recognizing the truth. And that's how the judgment comes out in this way. And it's, it's important to understand that, that Jesus didn't feel it necessary to bring judgment on people because they didn't believe. We could learn a lot from that because we judge or are known for judging. 
If you talk to someone, why don't you go to church? I don't like how judgmental they are. They're always judging. They're always judging. I've listened to, I don't know how many conferences recently I've heard about these things, and I listen to these conferences, and this one's against these people. This one's against these people. I'm like, wow, they're pretty judgmental. And sometimes we're known more for what we're against than what we're for. And Jesus said, I, I don't come to judge. Who I am will judge. If you know the truth, you will be set free. If you want to stay in, in the praise of men, then you will judge yourself because you had the opportunity to follow the light, but you chose the darkness. Okay. Any questions or thoughts on this chapter? Sorry, I went a little long, but I wanted to try and finish it. Anything that stood out to you or any questions about what I said that didn't make sense? My feelings won't be hurt. I say a lot of things that don't make sense. Yes, Tim. Well, it wasn't uncommon for Jesus to go off to a, a solitude place and pray. I think he did it for himself a lot of times to just, I mean, this is a pretty an emotional thing that he's going through. You know, these people are saying, you're the king, you're the king, and that's true, but I've come here to die, and you're trying to keep me from that. And so I think a good part of this is just him going off to be away from that element and you know, I mean, it's because he's going to come back and he's going to be there in their midst again, um, but not at this point. But, you know, speculation, kind of talking from silence. Any other thoughts on this chapter or questions? Yes. Well, the idea of the word is the expression of God. You know, I mean, the scriptures are or do contain God's word, but Jesus was the image of God stamped in human flesh, and so he was kind of the representation of God. Many times when we see in the scripture, you know, the phrase, the word of God, you know, they spoke the word of God boldly. What, what did they speak, you know, in Acts? Well, they went, you know, they were persecuted, they were filled with the spirit, and then they spoke the word of God boldly. Well, what does that mean? What, what did... What does that entail? And the whole idea of the word of God would probably be most easily thought of as the gospel. You know, they, they spoke this message boldly. The message is what? About Jesus, who he was, what he's done, and what he's going to do. And so that's kind of the word of God is the message of who Jesus is and what's going on. And so we see it's not static. It's active. It's something that is alive. You know, like it says in Hebrews, the word of God is alive and powerful. What is it? It's the message of Jesus. can't be contained. It's not saying the scriptures aren't inspired. It's just saying this message of Jesus, it's alive, powerful. You know, and that's what cuts to the heart. You know, a lot of times I've heard people say, well, just give them the word. You know, and it's like, just quote scripture at them. And that's never gone well with me. When I just quote scripture at people, they're like, okay, well, th you know, thank you, but I don't believe that or whatever. The Pharisees knew the scripture, you know, and it's not that the scripture isn't true. It's just they're not in a place where they're receptive. But the message of Jesus, that's different. And you can share what's in scripture, the message, without quote, quoting scripture. You know, and so that whole idea of the message of Jesus, the gospel message, that's what's alive and powerful. That's what they spoke boldly. 
And it's a small thing, but it's a big thing. You know, it's a, it's, it's not taking away that scripture is God's word, but it's helping us to see what was intended when this was written. And it's been amazing. Some of the people I talked to, I said, well, you know, when it says the word of God there, it doesn't mean the Bible. They're like, what do you mean? Well, the, the Bible wasn't put together. How could it mean that? I mean, they've said, well, it was, it was spoken prophetically. Okay, you know, I'm not going to get anywhere. This is where you're at, so I'm not there to push that. But I think this is powerful, understanding that is the gospel that he's talking about. Does that shed any light? Okay. I've been preaching that for years. (laughs) Trying to get that. Any other thoughts or questions about something else or something stood out to you? Yeah, it, it's it's hard to grasp the emotion of all that's taking place here, you know, in Jesus and what's taking place with him and the disciples. I mean, John does a wonderful job at kind of explaining it as it goes on further. It's very emotional um, and it's very intentional. You know, God had a plan as soon as the fall came. We talked about that Sunday you know, I'll put enmity between your seed and, you know, the woman, the woman's seed and the serpent where, you know, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. You know, God set into motion what was going to be completed and we're seeing the fulfillment of that motion. So through all these years, God has been at work because this is his world, okay? He hasn't given up. He hasn't said, okay, I'll be back later, but right now you guys do whatever you want with it. He, he's, he's always been working. That's the Genesis story. God created, God breathed life into man. This is his, we're going to see God speaking to Noah, God speaking to Abraham, God working in a nation, God giving laws, God giving instruction, God giving prophets. God is always speaking because he's never left. He's never quit. He's never stopped working. And so here is the fulfillment where Jesus now is going to fulfill all those things that God was doing from the very beginning. You know, And it's been heartbreak after heartbreak. Think about it. God's chosen people have probably been the most enslaved people known in history. Isn't that crazy? They're God's people. They've been... You know, Egypt, Babylon, Assyrian, you know, Nazi Germany, you name it. The Jews have suffered, suffered time and time again. And it's been the history of God's chosen people. Well, yeah, it's because God never gave up on them. God was always doing that and God was always doing it. And the same thing is going to be true with his church. The church has always been suffering persecution. You know, the church is strongest where it's being persecuted. Probably the greatest revival in our century took place in China when there were no missionaries there. Millions came to faith under the iron or bamboo curtain, under the persecution. Then the bamboo curtain's lifted and we find out there's a church of six million people. Where'd you guys come from? God spoke to us and we were here. It's like, well, how'd that happen? We didn't go there. Yeah. Probably better. I mean, it, it's amazing. You know, God is at work. 
and we think we have to be there. It's amazing the arrogance that we have, even in how we look at Scripture and think that it's being written specifically to our culture. You know, it applies to us, it applies to every culture, but it was written to a certain people at a certain time. And if you don't take that into consideration, that's well, kind of arrogant. This was written for me, you know, in my time. And this is when it talks about clothing, it's talking about this style of clothing. No, you don't have no idea what it was. And if you don't recognize those things, you make some pretty, again, arrogant claims that end up becoming very divisive. And we see God always getting us back to where we need to be. I keep going off track, but anyway. (laughs) Any other thoughts? No? Let's pray. Lord, your heart would beat just like ours. And you loved like we do and even more. And you hurt like we do and probably even more. And as we read these things and we see the frustration that no matter what you do, still people wouldn't believe. Lord, we recognize the, the power of our choices and the importance of them as well. And so, Lord, may we walk with you and in the light. May we hear your voice. And may we be willing to make the sacrifices necessary so we can hear your voice. May we give up on our comforts and our ease of life to find more of what you have for us. May we be willing to put it aside for you. And Lord, we don't know what that looks like. You might not be calling us to anything different. You might just be asking for more of our time. But Lord, you speak when we give of ourselves to you. And so I pray whatever that looks like for everyone here, may it take place. May we be willing to sacrifice for the opportunity to hear your voice. And as we continue just reading, Lord, may you be honored as we continue to desire your work in our midst Father, may we be willing to do what is necessary so that that can take place. And I thank you again for allowing us time here. And I pray, Lord, the things that are useful will stay with us. Lord, that you will help us to grow in our relationship with you and that this time has been fruitful for that. We thank you, Lord, and ask your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.